If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, I'll begin reading in verse number 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he saw, when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Beginning a series this Sunday on the greatest sermon ever preached. No, it wasn't John Wesley or Spurgeon who preached it. It was Jesus. Often referred to in many of your Bibles in the headings, it'll say the Sermon on the Mount. Leading up to this passage, John the Baptist in the chapters before had been preaching about the kingdom of God and that it was coming. And then Jesus begins his ministry here in chapter 5, preaching about the kingdom of heaven. Now, this shouldn't be a surprise to us, but we come and are citizens of a different place. The continuing theme was God wanting to communicate to the people that his kingdom was a different place than what they were seeing on earth. And he wanted to let them know what the kingdom of heaven was like. Many of the parables that Jesus taught often began with, the kingdom of heaven is like this, or the kingdom of heaven operates this way. In this passage, it's not so much what the kingdom of heaven is like, but what the people in the kingdom of heaven are like. What are their qualities? What what is their character? We know that this world is not our home and that we are citizens of a different kingdom. So if we are, we should get some insight or have some deep understanding of what the people who are citizens in the kingdom of God are like. What qualities do they have? And we need to see as we go through this list that these qualities are interrelated. They're not a buffet table. Now, I've always loved buffet tables because there's always something at a buffet that I don't like. So I can avoid that. I'll go for the chicken or the steak or the beef, whatever that spinach, broccoli creation thing is, I'll just kind of avoid that. But these qualities are not a buffet table. 
They're interrelated. They actually build one on another. Second Peter chapter one, verses five through seven say, but for this reason, this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. We don't just pick and choose the qualities that the Bible says belong to people who are citizens in the kingdom of God. These are all things that should be true about all of us. They're interwoven qualities of a citizen of a very special place. He begins with something that might be difficult for some to understand. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For those, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. People who understand their spiritual need. One of the things that really does surprise me about people today is they can be clearly, from all observation, from all accounts, just anybody looking on with even a surface knowledge, clearly be in need. Clearly have things that are messed up. And they'll look at you in all sincerity and say, I'm fine. Brother, sister, no, you're not. People who understand, apart from Jesus, their spiritual need. People who, apart from Jesus, understand their total wretchedness. People who understand that, apart from the Lord, they possess this incredible level of being destitute. How needy their soul really is. And that we are saved, not because we're good-looking. Yes, of course, all of you are. Even behind masks, you're all good-looking. But that's not why we're saved. We're not saved because we're talented. We're not saved because we're gifted. We're not saved because we're committed. We're not saved because we're faithful. We're saved because his grace entered into our lives. Not by anything we did. And he says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All that is heaven, all the resources, all the ability, all the power, its fullness is yours. Yes, I understand what Jesus did for me and how he placed in me something special. I understand who I am in him today, but may I never lose sight of what I am without him what I am without his glory, what I am without his touched. We sang that song today, he touched me. What I am if he hadn't. He touched me. Next he goes, a verse I often quote at a funeral. Blessed are those who mourn. Now this relates to the first one. Because when we truly understand where our spiritual nature is without Jesus, it should lead us to a place of grief. And how we respond to that sorrow is key. Because in Jesus, sorrow becomes joy. In Jesus, mourning becomes joy as well. Now the thing is, and I've often said this at a funeral, That's a conditional promise. Jesus is promising a blessing to those who mourn. That means we have to mourn. 
He's promising comfort to those who mourn. He's not promising comfort to people who are going to hide the fact that they've got something in their life they're mourning. I've often told people when I'm trying to comfort them at the loss of a loved one, they should go ahead and mourn. But I don't want to let anybody know that I've got this issue in my life. That's hiding it, and the comfort that Jesus promises in this is not provided. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. They shall be comforted. The world, that word literally means to be drawn near to God. What a wonderful thing. Now, I guess occupationally, I've been to a lot of funerals in 27 years of ministry. And I've been to some where the close family members will truly express what they're feeling inside. And I've been to some where instead of expressing their feeling or their emotion or their state at the loss of a loved one, the funeral basically has become a referendum on the dysfunction within the family. I think you all don't understand what I'm trying to get at here. Well, I'll give the mic and I'll say, does anybody want to say anything before I make my comments? I've stopped doing that. Because <laughs> the last one I officiated, I said, does anybody want to say anything? And four members of the family got up. And the first one said, well, I just want to say some things about my departed relative, because you know, I was her favorite. That's what she said. And she made some other comments, and then the second one got up and said, well, you're wrong. I was really the favorite. I don't have to tell you what family member three and four said. And they began to argue a little bit about who was this person. That's not mourning. I'm not sure what that is. It's just not mourning. But there's a blessing that Jesus is promising, a comfort, when we will just be honest, when we will just be a level of transparency that the world needs to see because we live in a world where they're mourning. There's tremendous pain and hurting and grief, and they don't know what to do with that grief. They need the comfort of Jesus. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek. Now, I'm going to declare today that meekness is severely underrated. What Jesus is saying here is blessed are those with a gentle spirit. And meekness has nothing to do with weakness. Meekness has nothing to do with a quiet personality trait. The root word here is what we would call in English about being a gentleman or a lady. There is a level of candor or a level of conduct. It also means there in the original language that when we're being meek, we are considering every single person around us equal to us. We look down upon no one. A meek person thinks there's no one beneath them. 
and not just thinks that way, we behave that way. They're ready to associate with anyone. They're ready to associate with people that the world won't associate with. They're ready to stand with people that the world has turned its back on. They're ready to be that person because they believe no one is beneath them. Blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. Now we have to see the context here. Inheriting the earth to the people that Jesus was preaching to would have brought them right back to Canaan land and the inheritance that was promised the children of Israel. All that God had, all the goodness, that land flowing with milk and honey, it was promised to those who were meek, those who would rather suffer injury than inflict pain. Most people aren't like that today. They'd rather inflict pain than absorb it. But Jesus is saying, blessed are the meek. So what are you saying, Pastor, that we should be weak individuals? No, because it takes strength to be meek. It takes a strength the world doesn't understand. And they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness' sake. Now, you and I have built-in survival skills. If all of a sudden three, four days go by and you haven't eaten, your survival instincts will kick in and you will find some way to address that need. If you've gone more than a day or so without water, your survival instincts will kick in and you will find a way to address that need. If it's been a month since many of you have had anything that had pasta in it, you'll find a way to fulfill that need after a while. There's a survival instinct that kicks in. Because when we deny our survival instincts, we begin to go crazy. But you see, we also were given by God as his created beings. We were given spiritual instincts that we have needs that can only be satisfied by the almighty God who created us. So whereas if we deny our physical survival instincts, we'll go crazy. If we deny our spiritual survival instincts, we will become carnal. We will begin to look for other ways and we will call them spiritual appetites. But we need what God has to offer. And he says, for those who thirst and hunger for righteousness, he says, they will be filled. Now it's his righteousness, not yours, not mine, not the group we belong to, but his righteousness. What a great promise that when you come to Jesus, when we walk into his presence, we will never leave hungry. We will never leave empty. We will never leave unsatisfied. God provides a, a hunger or that instinct within us and then is willing to be there to provide. Hallelujah. Blessed are the merciful. Hmm.
we have a sense of justice about us that has its merit. But if we're honest, more than it should be, that sense of justice is self-centered. We like it when other people receive justice. We like it when we receive mercy. But what Jesus is saying here is that if we want to be people who receive mercy, we need to be people who extend mercy. If we want to be people who receive forgiveness, we need to be people who extend forgiveness. We give to others. But if we're going to extend mercy to others, we need to be able to share in what they're going through, even when what they're going through is self-inflicted. I've often been puzzled. I understand that many of us have experienced things at the hands of other people, even at the hands of other Christians, that has been extremely painful extremely wrong and extremely unkind, extremely unjust. And I always say to people, we need to be people who forgive. And I've often gotten a comment back that forgiveness has its limits. Now, wait a minute. Aren't you glad when Jesus looked at you, he didn't think that? Aren't we glad that when Jesus looked from Calvary and looked at you and me and Instead of saying, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing, he didn't say, well, except for that one back there. Because he's, he's really messed up. Blessed are the merciful, those who are willing to extend to people something that they haven't earned, don't deserve, and aren't walking into. That's mercy. And you and I receive that from God each and every day. You and I receive that from the moment Calvary's scene had ended. We received mercy beyond compare. And what he wants us to know is that there is a blessing in extending mercy to other people. Many times when we're in trouble and feeling alone and no one is coming to our aid. I'm not trying to be overly difficult. But I have to wonder in those times, at least in my own life, if I'm just reaping what I've sowed. Have I extended mercy to others? We are promised that we will obtain the very thing we give to other people. Mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. Now again, we need to understand the scene that Jesus is preaching to from this mountainside as the beginning of his ministry is about to happen. Blessed are the pure in heart. The backdrop contrast to this are those wonderful collection of leaders known as Pharisees. They were concerned with purity, but all of their concern with purity ended with outward purity teaching of the time was very concerned with outward purity and outward cleansing and outward washing. But Jesus is saying here, yeah, there may be some benefit, there may be some effort that should be given to the outward appearance, but purity begins in your heart. Outward outward purity 
Outward appearances should be a response, an outflowing, an expression of what is happening on the inside. Yet when it came to the Pharisees, Jesus looked at them and said, you look pretty good on the outside, but you got dead men's bones on the inside. It's just like painting an old rickety fence. Nice paint. It's still an old rickety fence. Psalm 24, verses 2 through 2 and 3. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it in the waters. Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord or may stand in the holy place. Understand how this would have been heard by the people who heard it first. Because they had grown up hearing the Old Testament scriptures, and there was, if there was anything that was evident about the Old Testament scriptures, is that no one can see God. And here, Jesus is making a comment, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. They will have an understanding. They will have an apprehension and, and understanding of what it means to fellowship with God. Doing the right things doesn't account just for righteousness. That requires Jesus. We want to be pure in heart. We want the things that we do for others to come out of a heart that's overflowing based on what Jesus did for us. And he's done so much. Then he comes to my favorite. Blessed are the peacemakers. We all have families, right? We've all had those family gatherings when you were praying, Lord, send a peacemaker. The actual word there means a reconciler. But I've come to realize something in order to make this verse happen. In order for you to make peace, you have to have peace. You can't make peace with ingredients you don't possess. You can't make a chocolate cake if all you have is pasta and sauce. You don't have the right ingredients. If you ask me to bake you a chocolate, well, first, you'd never ask me to bake you a chocolate cake. But you cannot make, you cannot create an environment for it to happen in around you and others if there's no peace within you. You're not going to be able to swell or squash the anger that other people are expressing if there's nothing but anger inside of you. The desire here is to reconcile, to bring people back to a state of unity. which means that peace must be founded on the gospel because our father is the father of peace. Now, one thing I learned growing up is that peace doesn't always mean quiet. I'm the oldest of three boys that were in my home growing up, and we were three boys. A lot of noise, a lot of rough housing. And my dad worked hard. He was a laborer. He was a machinist all his life. And he would come home after a hard day at the shop. 
And if I had a dime for every time I heard it, I'd probably pay off all of our mortgages. He'd always say when he came home and would hear the noise, all I want is some peace and quiet. I later found out my daddy lied. Because all he wanted was quiet. He could never care less if there was peace between my brothers and I. Because they're two different things. Because how many of us have been in those situations when it's all quiet, but you know there's no peace? They say you can cut the tension with a knife. What Jesus is coming here about a peacemaker is someone who's willing to get in there, even though it may be for some period of time, very not quiet and bring people to a place where there is peace. But before we calm the storms around us, we need to calm the storms within. And it says they will be called the sons of God because their father is the father of peace. So when, so then whose children are people being when they forge division or create strife or work difficulty between brothers and sisters in the faith? Because God's children work peace. God's children promote unity. God's children bring a calm that comes from within and isn't just quiet. If someone is bringing division, if someone is causing strife, of all the things you might be able to say that are true, one thing you can say is that they're not God's children. Because God's children behave this way. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now, I'm glad he put that last part in. Because I've often been persecuted for dumb things I did. And at that point, I deserve to be persecuted. But you're persecuted here for righteousness' sake. Anyone ever have someone not understand you? Just look at you and kind of shake their head? They become offended at the stands you take. But this is just part of being in his kingdom, that those who are not from his kingdom are not going to fully get why we do the things we do. When you give the clerk at the counter a $5 bill for a $3 purchase and she gives you change of a 20, you're going to give the money back. And she's going to look at you, one, like you just saved my job, so thank you, because it's going to count this draw at the end of my shift. But you're also behaving in a way that's not of this kingdom. You're from another kingdom, because you believe in honesty. You believe in integrity, and true integrity is what you do when no one's watching. And he says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I'm not looking for this world to be mine. I'm not looking for this world to be my home. I'm not looking for this world to find comfortable places for me. I'm not looking to have it easy here. My home, my kingdom, my citizenship is in a different place. So this world won't be yours. So it should never surprise us that when I look at the news or I read the paper, or I see conversations between co-workers or people in the market that I'm going to constantly be shaking my head because I don't get it. When I left that funeral with that lovely family, 
I kind of got in the car and kind of shook my head. But not just blessed are they who understand that they're not part of this world. Blessed are they when they persecute you, when you're given a hard time about it. This happened about two years ago. I was at work. We were still in the office back then. Kind of hard to imagine that, that time, uh, time period. And we were discussing we had to deliver some news to one of the attorneys about one of the systems that had malfunctioned. And since it was a system that I was responsible for supporting, I was the one who was going to deliver the news, and I had no problem with that. But then one of my supervisors came to me, one of my bosses, he was my boss's boss, and he asked me, what are you going to say to him? I just said, the truth. And he actually said to me, how much of the truth? All of it. And then he looked at me and said, Bahiram, that's the problem with you. You're too honest. Hallelujah. I'm not going to be selective in the information I provide you for fear that one day it might come back at me. I'm going to stand on truth and then let the author of truth guide and protect and watch over my life. What is this nonsense about being too honest? Go ahead. Let's be guilty of that. Go out there and be too honest. How much truth are you going to tell him? You can tell I work for a law firm. And if you're a lawyer, I'm sorry. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. Then he ends it, this part of the sermon, because this sermon goes on for three chapters. Blessed are you when you are reviled, persecuted, and have all manner of evil said against you. How many of you, when you've been talked poorly about, say, thank you, Jesus? Receive it as a blessing. Now, again, the caveat, when they do all those things, when they revile you, when they persecute you, when they come after you, when they say all manner of evil against you for his name's sake. We need to come to a place where we understand it doesn't matter what anyone's hands can do to me. It doesn't matter what anyone's mind thinks about me. It doesn't matter what anyone's heart fashions against me. It doesn't matter what anyone's tongue says about me. I belong to Jesus. Now, the word persecute here is a legal term. They bring some accusation against you. But you see, in order to be persecuted for Christ, someone's got to know you belong to him. You know, I've been watching the news for the various events that happen, especially that those involved the church and Christian leaders, and I've actually seen people post that they don't want to identify themselves as a Christian because of how others or some have brought a bad name on that word. I'm sorry, I don't care if everybody in the entire planet brings a bad reproach upon Jesus. I'm going to declare myself a Christian because I belong to Jesus. I belong to the one who endured the cross. And then when all this is happening to you, when you are reviled and persecuted and have all manner of evil set against you, Jesus says, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, 
Really? The words there literally mean to be cheerful and to be in a place where we don't take the words that are said against us personally. Exceedingly glad. You jump for joy. You'll forgive me if, as I'm still recovering from my back, I'm not going to jump at the moment. They did these things to the prophets, Jesus said. So it should give us some type of comfort to know that we're in good company, in the company of Jeremiah, in the company of Isaiah. They are poor in spirit. They mourn. They, they are meek. They hunger and thirst for righteousness' sake. They're merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers. And because of all these things, therefore, they're persecuted for the kingdom of heaven, misunderstood by the proud, misunderstood by the arrogant of our culture. My ultimate goal in life has nothing to do with things here. One day I want to see him. One day I want to see him. And I, I love that song, um, Imagine, what that day will be like. And I like the chorus in it, where it talks about, will I stand for you, Jesus, or to my knees will I bow? Will I sing hallelujah, or will I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine. But that's my goal. That's my direction. That's where my gate is set. That's what I'm looking for. It's nothing here. Eight graces, all interrelated, working together to produce the right kind of character, the right kind of integrity, the right kind of Christian. Yes, Christian. Are you sure you want to use that word, Pastor? A lot of people out there who are bringing it a bad name. But I know one person who brings it a good name, and that's Jesus. And overall, regardless of what we think about these eight graces, Jesus says for these people, they're blessed. Who wants to be blessed today? Who wants to experience the blessings of God today? Well, when Jesus began his ministry, he began by giving instructions to the people on that mountainside of how they could receive blessings from on high. And it began with these eight things. Now, he's going to go on to talk about a whole lot of other things. But it began with these. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are the hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers. And blessed are you when you take a stand, even if nobody else will. And then don't get this back up like, well, I'm going to stand because nobody else is. Trust me, there are other people taking a stand. But we keep our eyes on Jesus, on him, because who was at the center of this scene? Thousands upon thousands of people on a mountainside. The disciples had come, and they were all looking to Jesus. Let's pray.